Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Welcome to my three-part podcast on the Trinity. In this podcast series, we'll take a look at God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, referred to collectively as the Trinity, or the Triune God, or the Godhead, three in one. Pastor Armando Palazzo, in a blog on his website, FusionChurchNewYork.com, says that the Trinity is one of those mysteries of God that we will never fully understand completely. But what I want to help you uncover in these next few podcasts is what we can see in Scripture. And that's that God has always existed in relationship with himself for all eternity. Okay, I know that's a confusing concept, and we're going to explore it a bit. Each member of the Trinity serves different functions that we're going to talk about, yet they each possess equal power and equal authority. The Trinity exists as what we call one substance and three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This whole idea of the Trinity is confusing and controversial and has caused a lot of spirited debate. So I'm going to be citing many resources to help explain the Trinity, including the Bible, God's own words, gotquestions.org, podcast by The Bible Project, the National Catholic Register, Martin Luther, and I'll also be quoting from a number of pastors' sermons, and I'll quote from renowned author Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell actually is one of my favorite Christian authors. He's written a slew of excellent books on Christianity, two that I highly recommend, More Than a Carpenter and Answer to Tough Questions. What we'll cover in this first podcast is greater understanding of what the Bible says about God the Father. That'll be followed in part two by Jesus, God the Son, and then our final part will be God the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to know that this term, the Trinity, it's not found in the Bible, and it's a term for the Godhead that was never used by Jesus and never used by the apostles. But that doesn't mean that they didn't have a sense of its existence. They just weren't hung up on terminology. As we cover this topic, please pray for the Holy Spirit to just help you gain wisdom and discernment and really to get out of this what they want you to know about the Godhead. And I'll say it's okay if 
you're no further along in your understanding at the end of this podcast than you were at the beginning because we're all students of the Bible. This is a lifelong journey. In fact, the Bible tells us the angels are still learning. So here's the bad news or the good news, depending on how you look at it. We're going to still be learning in heaven and then for eternity in the new heaven and the new earth. I think that's an awesome thought. Contrary to some people's opinions, we're not going to know everything when we get to heaven. At no point in time will we know everything because that's God, not us. However, we will no longer have the shadow of sin to cloud our understanding. And that's really important. The Apostle Paul, he wrote about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. But I think that people have been confused by his intent. He says, Now we see but a poor reflection, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now Paul uses these Greek words, gnosko and epigonosko. And that's when he's talking about we're going to know and then know fully. The prefix epi, E-P-I, it intensifies that word. So it means like to really know or to know extensively. But when this word is used to refer to humans, which he's doing, it never means absolute knowledge because we're not and never will be God. Thank God. So that's not what Paul meant. God is omniscient and omnipotent, all-knowing, all-powerful. That's not us, nor will it ever be. But here's the cool part. As we study God's word and meditate on it, as we dig deeper into the scriptures, we will gain a greater understanding of who God is and will grow to understand just how much he loves us and wants a relationship with us. But again, here's the caveat. At best, with our mortal eyes and our mortal sin-filled brains, it's still going to be a murky glimpse of who God really is. As Paul says, now we see a murky glimpse as in a mirror. So mirrors during the time of Paul, they were really distorted. I almost think of like those weird mirrors at a fair that really distorts everything you see. So even on our best days, Truly, that's how we see God. In our wildest dreams, it still seems incomprehensible to us that someone so all-knowing, all-powerful, and filled with love could possibly love us. So in this podcast, just remember, if it still seems a bit murky, it's because of the limitations of our language and the inability of our brains and our eyes to really, truly comprehend how awesome and amazing and loving and good God is. But we're still going to try. We're going to grow in our knowledge so that we can grow in our faith so that we can share this good news of love and salvation with others. Because that's what we're called to do. In the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says, And without faith? It's impossible to please him, for 
whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So that's what we're going to do. The Bible, all 66 books of the Old and the New Testament, well, they tell one continuous narrative story of God and his loving desire to have this everlasting relationship with us. If we start with the very first line of the Bible, it makes a simple and profound statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, all good stories should start with a provocative hook, and the Bible certainly does. This book that we call the Bible was written by over 40 authors over a span of 1,500 years, and we call it God-breathed or God-inspired. And it tells us that God created everything. Now, that's a pretty awesome statement when you consider that the galaxy that we live in spins at 490,000 miles per hour. And even with this whopping speed, it still takes over 200 million years for our galaxy to just make one rotation. And of course, that's just our galaxy, the Milky Way. There's over 1 billion, with a B, other galaxies just like ours in the universe. And our universe keeps expanding. The Bible tells us that God placed the stars in the sky. Scientists believe that there's roughly 10,000 stars for every grain of sand on the earth. That first sentence of the first chapter of the Bible tells us a whole lot about who God is. God gives order to chaos. God makes darkness into light. The Bible says that God created everything, including life itself. You know, when you look around at the absolute massiveness of it all, you could say that it takes more faith to believe that this all just happened or evolved than it actually takes to believe that God did all this. The Bible tells us not how God created the universe. The Bible's not a how-to book. You can't read it and be like, oh, now I know how to create the universe. No. The Bible tells us who God. And the Bible tells us why. Because he loves us and wants to have a relationship with us. You know, there's many ancient religions who have a theory about how the world was created. And most of these theories have to do with warring gods. And then there's many scientists who have their own theories. However, it's only the Bible that shows one supreme God creating the earth, not as part of a cosmic battle or to gain authority over some other God, but because of his great love and therefore giving all people a special place. The Bible tells us God created all that we can see and that he wants to rule the earth together with us forever. We also learn 
from the very first line of the Bible that God has always been in existence. Yeah, that makes my brain hurt. God didn't need to create the universe. He chose to create the universe. That's a pretty cool thought. Why did he create it? Because God is love, and love is best expressed in a relationship, and he wanted to have a relationship with us. Josh McDowell, that I've mentioned before, the well-known Christian author, he says this about God. He says, God is infinite. Remember learning about infinity in school? Unlike us, God has no limits or boundaries. He isn't confined to the dimension of space. That's an attribute about God that just makes my head hurt. The Bible tells us that his love, his holiness, his mercy, and all his other qualities are unlimited in their scope and expression. This is part of the reason why we have such a hard time understanding who God is, because our brains don't work well with this idea of infinite. As we go through this podcast, we're going to look at the Bible to see God's attributes or characteristics to, again, help us better understand who God the Father is. Now, one of the challenges for us is that the English translated Bible is limited in what we call God. Hmm. Now, this problem might become a little clearer in a moment. We call God, God. And God can mean different things to different people. In our English language, we basically have two names for God in the Old Testament, God and Lord. But throughout the Bible, in the original Hebrew translation, did you know that God refers to himself by many different names and titles? And each name reveals a different aspect of his nature, his personality, his power, his attributes. So I thought a good way for us to start to understand who God is would be to look at the various names of God in the Old Testament. For example, the name Elohim is used in Genesis chapter 1. But in Genesis chapter 2, God refers to himself as Yahweh. Now, as we dig deeper, we're going to discover that in the original language, God has many names, some of which include multiple variants. But these names are simply translated as God and Lord in our modern English translations. So we're going to look at a couple of these names, including Elohim, El, Adonai, I am, and Yahweh. Now, when we study the meanings of these names, we're going to learn that they actually teach us many truths about our Creator. And this does not mean we believe in multiple gods. No. Names are very important in the Bible. Names tell us something about the attributes or the nature of the being. Each of the names for God in the Bible is going to reveal something important about God's power, 
his nature, his character, his acts. Learn a lot about our creator by studying the meaning of his names. In the Bible, names are not used just to identify someone. But again, they describe certain characteristics of the person. Remember how God changed quite a few names in the Bible as they grew in their relationship with him? Like Abram to Abraham, Sarah to Sarah, Jacob to Israel, Saul to Paul, Simon to Peter. Okay, but what about the names of God in the Bible? What are their meanings? And what do they reveal about him? So for the next few minutes, let's take a look at this, and hopefully it will aid in your growing understanding of who God is. Much of this information I am taking from Josh McDowell's blog on the attributes of God and from assorted podcasts on God by the Bible Project. God refers to himself by many names in the Bible. And with each name, we learn a little bit more about him. Often the first time one of his names is used in the scriptures, it'll give us insight into the quality or characteristic of God that he's revealing by that name. For example, as I said, in the Hebrew Bible, Elohim, that's the first word translated as God in the Bible, is found in that very first sentence, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God in our English translation is from that Hebrew word Elohim. It's the most often used Hebrew word translated as God in the Old Testament. It's translated as God over 2,300 times. So Elohim, right here at the very beginning, is revealing himself as creator of the heavens and the earth. However, oh my gosh, you guys, this is wild. That's not all that word reveals. This is going to blow your mind. Elohim, I'm going to spell it. It's E-L-O-H-I-M. It's a plural word. It's the plural of the Hebrew word Eloah. It's a name that's only used 52 times in reference to the true God in Scripture. So in Hebrew, when I am is added to the end of the word, it makes the word plural. Just like adding an S at the end of a word in English or in Spanish makes it plural. This is a little confusing, but it's going to make sense eventually. The word Elohim can be used to refer to the true God that we're talking about or false gods because in the Bible, there were people who believed in other gods. In fact, the word Elohim is translated as false gods over 240 times. For example, if you look up Exodus chapter 20, verse 23, it's talking about like the false Elohims. Okay, work with me here. We're going to see that there is only one 
true Elohim. And this is the power of looking at God's names in Hebrew. God is the Elohim of all of the Elohims. Throughout history, people believed in false gods. So the Bible's telling us right here at the beginning which God we're talking about. Okay. Now, the fact that that word Elohim that ends in I am is a plural, okay, this also reveals a vital truth about the true God. It shows us that there is more than one member of the Godhead. This is the first evidence of the Trinity. And we see this understanding of the plural nature of Elohim Still in that first chapter, look at this with me. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Did you hear that? Let us, our image, our likeness, Elohim, more than one, plural. Okay, you're not alone. Throughout the years, many theologians have grappled with the question of how can God be both singular and plural? It's sort of what we're trying to explore in this study of the nature of God and the Trinity. The use of the plural noun, Elohim, in Genesis 1, introduces us to a truth that becomes clearer throughout the rest of the Bible. God isn't alone. He, along with the Word, dwelt together from eternity. I know this is making your head hurt, but stick with me. We're going to look at another word for God in the Bible. It's L, E-L. It's a shortened form of Eloah and Elohim. L emphasizes God's might and power. And it's translated as God many times in the Old Testament. And L is sometimes used in conjunction with other words to describe various aspects of God's nature and character. For example, El Shaddai. You've possibly heard of that. The word Shaddai means most powerful or almighty. So, in Hebrew, when you have El Shaddai, that means God Almighty or God, the most powerful. It emphasizes God's unmatchable power and strength. And this name, El Shaddai, is used to describe God 48 times in the Old Testament. Some examples include Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, Genesis chapter 28, verse 3, and Exodus chapter 6, verse 3. So remember, we're looking at the Hebrews so that we can get a greater understanding of God's personality and character other than just using the words God and Lord. 
Another time that L is used is with an adjective, elyon. That means elevated or high or exalted. So when you put L and elyon together, it means God the Most High or the Most High God. And so this emphasizes God's preeminence, his ultimate power and authority over everything. This is in Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. It's in the Psalms, Psalm 78, verse 35, Psalm 47, verse 2, Psalm 97, verse 9. Now, here's something interesting. In Isaiah's account, when he talks about Lucifer, how he attempted to uh, rebel, remember Lucifer becomes Satan, Lucifer uses this name, El Elyon, as an attempt to overthrow God's throne and become the Most High. But remember, this attempt fails miserably, and this is sort of Satan's whole shtick that he can become like God. No. There's another time that El is used, and it's with the noun Olam, O-L-A-M. And this means eternity or the distant future or perpetual, without end, everlasting. So when we put together El with Olam, it means the everlasting God, the eternal God. This name is found in Genesis chapter 21, verse 33. There's another time El is used in the Bible, and that's with the noun Moshe'ah. That means saving act or deliverance or salvation. So when you put it together with El, El Moshe'ah means the God of salvation or God the deliverer. And this emphasizes God's character of love and his power over all things. He's the God who loves and cares about his people so much that he saves and delivers them. This is found in Psalm 68, verse 20. Now, take a look at this psalm for a moment. Remember, we're talking about the attributes of God. This attribute tells us that God saves us. Can you see how this is pointing towards the Godhead of Jesus, the Son? Praise be to the Lord, to God our Savior, El Moshe'ah, who daily bears our burdens. Our God is a God who saves. This is interesting. El, E-L, is often found embedded in other names in the Bible. Can you think of some? If you see a name that has E-L within it, it's a name proclaiming an element of God's power and character. Okay, Israel. Israel. Hence in E-L, it means one who prevails with God. Samuel. It means heard of God. Eliezer, 
God has helped. Emmanuel, God with us. Michael, who is like God. Elimelech, my God is king. Elijah, my God is Lord. Wow, are you starting to see how our English word for God or Lord falls short? Why don't we know this or study this? The apostles, they meditated on the Old Testament scriptures in Hebrew day and night. They truly had a clearer understanding of the attributes of the one true God and his various names. Now, you've probably noticed that sometimes in our English translations of the Old Testament, you'll see the word God, and sometimes you'll see the word Lord, L-O-R-D, all in caps. And then sometimes you'll see the word Lord with just an uppercase L and the rest is lowercase. The primary reason for the use of the word Lord all in uppercase is in place of God's Hebrew name, Yahweh. And this is to follow the tradition of the Israelites and not pronouncing or spelling out God's name. So it was always like a placeholder. So when God's Hebrew name, Yahweh, is used in the Old Testament, our English translation is the uppercase Lord, all in caps. The first time this name appears for God occurs in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. It says, when the Lord, all uppercase, God made the heavens and the earth. Yahweh, or Lord, is translated over 6,500 times in the Old Testament. Okay, now here's something interesting you might not know. So the Hebrew word, Yahweh, actually consists of only four Hebrew consonants because they didn't use vowels. So the word Yahweh, when you see it, written in English, we spell it a whole bunch of different ways. And um, if we're doing it correctly, we're not using vowels. So we're not spelling it Y-A-H-W-E-H. We're just using the consonants. So sometimes it's Y-H-V-H, J-H-V-H, I-H-V-H, J-H-W-H. So (laughs) these four consonants, they've actually been given a name. It's called a tetragrammaton, which is just a Greek word for meaning four letters. So anytime you read the all capitalized word Lord in the Bible, it's translated from that, those four consonants, the tetragrammaton for Yahweh, because the Jews considered that word Yahweh too sacred to be spoken. So They intentionally did not preserve how even to pronounce it. So, honestly, today no one knows exactly how it was to be pronounced, which is so awesome and so weird to think about. So, we don't even know. Was it Yahweh? Was it Jehovah? Uh, These are just guesses. But, of course, it's not important about the pronunciation. It's important about the meaning. Okay, let's continue. Another name for God in the Bible is Adonai, A-D-O-N-A-I, Adonai. Now, 
This basically means Lord in the terms of like a superior, a master, or an owner. So in our Bible, it's written Lord, L-O-R-D, but with an uppercase L and lowercase for everything else. The word emphasizes like the authority of the one it describes. But unlike other names of God, like Yahweh or I am, which we'll talk about in a minute, its usage in the Bible isn't just limited to describing God, because sometimes is someone is a Lord, which means a person of authority. And so when it's used for God, Bible translators usually translate Adonai, as I said, Lord with the uppercase L, and then everything else is lowercase. The names often used along with Yahweh or Elohim to kind of give double emphasis to God's ultimate power and authority. So I want you to see some examples. So open up your Bible, and we're going to look at the Psalms. The first Psalm we're going to look at is Psalm 8, verse 9. So let's look at our English translation first. The English translation says, O Lord, and that's uppercase Lord, our Lord, lowercase, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Okay, now the Hebrew translation is O Yahweh, so the, the, the God whose name we can't even say or spell or pronounce. Our Lord, Adonai, our master, how excellent is your name in all the earth. The next psalm I want you to look at is Psalm 135, verse 5. For I know that the Lord, uppercase L-O-R-D, is great, and our Lord, lowercase, is above all gods. Now, in Hebrew, it becomes more specific because for I know that Yahweh, again, the name that they can't even say or pronounce or write, is great. And our Adonai, their master, is above all the other gods, so that there's no question who they're talking about. They're talking about the God of gods. Did you think this would be easy? We're trying to understand the attributes of God. Stick with me. Here's another name of God. I am. Can you think of when that title was used? It's in Exodus 3, and this is when God was talking to Moses from a burning bush, and he's revealing to Moses that, Moses, you're going to be used to deliver the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. And Moses says, okay, so what name should I use to identify you when I speak to the people of Israel? This is in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. And so this may seem weird, but remember, in Egypt, they worship all kinds of gods. And so Moses wants to know, like, which God are you? And so God says, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you. It may sound odd that God called himself, I am. Why would he call himself, I am? Here's the reason. We're going to get another attribute of God from this name. The Hebrew word for I am, which is I-ya, it means to be or 
to exist. And what God is saying is that he is the God who simply is. He has no source of origin, no beginning. He came from no physical place. He simply exists and always has existed. Okay, mic drop. Josh McDowell explains that in ancient times, people were often identified by who their parents were or where they came from. Like Joshua in the Bible is called Joshua, the son of Nun. And Ishmael was called Ishmael, the son of Hagar, the Egyptian. And the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he was before his transformation was Saul of Tarsus and even Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. So when God identifies himself as I am, he's making this statement that he has no father, no mother, no one created him. He has no genealogy, no physical source of origin. He simply is and always has been. Whoa, are you starting to get a picture of who God is? According to Josh McDowell, the meaning of Yahweh is similar to the meaning of I am. And its basic meaning is the self-existing one, the eternal. It emphasizes that God has lived for eternity. No beginning, no end, was not brought into existence at any point in history by any other being. He's self-existent. Now, many scriptures elaborate on this essential truth of this meaning of Yahweh that he's been around for everlasting and ever and ever. Psalm 41.13 says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Psalm 90 verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth or ever, you had formed the earth and the world even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who is a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. And then Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Like the name El, Yahweh is also used in conjunction with other attributes of God to form other forms of the name Yahweh. And there's this one Bible passage that's unique because it contains that tetragrammaton, Yahweh, as well as other major names of God, all packed into one single verse. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. It says, For the Lord, uppercase, which is Yahweh, your God, Elohim is God, Elohim of gods, and Lord, Adonai of lords, the great God, El, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. Whoa. Well, there are other names for God in the Old Testament, and then there's a few Greek names for God in the New Testament. But I think we've covered the major ones. 
I just wanted to spend some time in this first podcast exploring the various names of God to help you understand his many attributes and also to pay closer attention to when you're reading the Bible and when you see that word Lord in uppercase or God or Lord in lowercase or combinations of these and to reflect on what they really mean. The teachers at thebibleproject.com remind us that, again, the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. Because of this, the identity of God, God's true nature, his attributes, his names, they kind of develop through the sequence of this story. Who God is on page one, Elohim, creator God, then continues to develop as more of his character is revealed to us. And all these attributes of God would have been formulated in the apostles' heads. They had memorized the Old Testament scriptures really from the time that they were little. So to the apostles, they understood God's the creator. He's unlimited, powerful God, the almighty and everlasting God, the one true God the salvation God, the eternal God, the no beginning and no end God, the loving God, the personal God. To the apostles who had a strong biblical belief about the nature of God, they didn't see God in terms of limitations of what he could and couldn't do. This week in your prayer time, reflect on who God is. Reflect on his many names. Reflect on the fact that the mighty God of the universe wants to have a relationship with you. Jeremiah 32, verse 17. O sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power. Nothing is too hard for you. Have a blessed day.